Father, that your word is true. I thank you, Lord, that your word is healing. I pray, Father, that we will walk away with ample truths, Lord God. I pray that we would just continue to grow, Lord, in our love and our knowledge of you. I pray that we would be lights in the dark world, Lord God, and that you would just continue to move in and through us, Lord. May we have ears that hear what your spirit is saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
Father, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for your truth. Thank you for life. Thank you for hope. We thank you, Father, that our hope in Christ will never disappoint us. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to open your word. I pray, God, that we'd be attentive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. The Father, that our hearts would be of good soil to receive your word, that it would take root and produce lasting fruit in our lives. We thank you, Father, that your word declares that if we draw close to you, you will draw close to us. I pray that would be our heart's desire today and for the days to come, to draw close to you, Lord. In Jesus' name. First Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20. The kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, but it's living by God's power. Not a lot of talk, but living by God's power. In the day and age in which we are living, and the day and age which we know are to come, as we are awaiting the return of our Lord Jesus, we know that deception is going to be throughout this earth. Are we preparing ourselves for the days that are upon us and the days to come? Such great deception, false teaching. The love of many will grow cold. Rebellion will rise. The occult will rise. Perversion will rise. And yet the church is commissioned to go forth and not be tainted by any of it. Oh, that we would mature, that we would grow in the fullness of who Christ is in our lives. That we wouldn't be a people of just a lot of talk, but that we would be people living by the power of God, dependent upon the Holy Spirit, daily, moment by moment, guarding our hearts, Taming our tongues, transforming our minds, only by the Holy Spirit, not in and of ourselves. Complete dependence upon Him who has begun this work in us. We didn't begin this. We wouldn't have chosen to live right. But God begun a work in us that He is faithful to complete. It's not about our good works. It's not about what we can do or what we have accomplished. It is all about Jesus. Are you thinking that way throughout your days? It's all about Him. Everything you say, everything you do, everything you think should be focused and centered on Christ and who He is and what He has called us collectively to do. To advance his kingdom. Remember God's plan and purpose is that he would have a people that he will call his own. And in return they will call him their God. That they would live for him. That they would honor him. That they would be set apart. That they would be holy as he is holy. Christ accomplished all that was needed. To bring a people and reconcile them back to the Father. Now therefore, as Romans 5.1 says, you, we are at peace with God 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is the good news that we should be sharing with others. The good news of Jesus. That apart from him, we're sinners. (laughs) We're in complete rebellion to the throne of God. Towards his kingdom. Living for self. But oh, when we accept Jesus and this free gift of salvation, when we have a a strong belief and a bold confession that He is the Son of God and that He rose from the dead, oh, that we are now a new creation, born again, born again of the Spirit, no longer living the temporalness, the, uh, the temporalness of life, and the nature of that we were physically born in, of the flesh. But now we've considered ourselves, and we consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive in Christ. This is our position. We are in Christ if we are true believers. And we are in agreement with Him. And what He has called us to do. We left off a few weeks, months ago in Leviticus, and that's where we're heading, to close out Leviticus chapter 27, verse 14, is where we're heading. And then we're going to pick up in Numbers, and we're going to read Numbers chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter 1, 1 through 54. But before we do, let me remind us about the last chapter of Leviticus, chapter 27. The final chapter of Leviticus deals with gifts promised to God, probably by the Israelites in desire, I'm sorry, in dire distress when they made a vow. But later, they might wish to take back the property they vowed. So last time we read through Leviticus... God was making provision. And so we're going to pick up and we're going to close that off where we see that God's people, that though they vowed something, God has made provision to have the property back. But the book of Numbers is where we want to really focus in today. The book of Numbers describes the nation of Israel's experience during the 40 years in the wilderness. Numbers was likely written as a warning to the generation of Israelites born in the wilderness that they should preserve in faith and obedience where their parents had not. For future generations of God's people, this book would speak a similar message. Don't forget that message. To preserve in faith and obedience, God's instructions. The first and last sections of Numbers, which is chapter 1, verse 1 through 10, and then chapters 26 through 36, are introduced by a census numbering the men who are eligible to fight in the army. The second census, however, confirms that all of those counted on the first occasion, only two remain alive to enter the land of Canaan, Joshua and Caleb. 
The explanation of the death of the first generation comes in the middle two sections of Numbers. The first of these, which is the longer, in chapter 10, starting in verse 11, through chapter 21, verse 1, describes how the Israelites rebelled against God when confronted by the challenge of taking the land of Canaan and how they failed to trust God fully to provide for them in the wilderness. For these failures, the adult generation is condemned by God to die in the wilderness, and the whole nation must spend 40 years in the wilderness. The second of the middle two sections, chapter 22, verse 2 through chapter 25, verse 18, which prepares for a new generation of adult Israelites among entering the promised land, focuses on a series of blessings pronounced by a foreign prophet, Balaam. These blessings echo the divine promises given to the patriarchs in Genesis, indicating that in spite of punishing the Israelites in the wilderness, God has not abandoned his plans for the nation. The events in Numbers vividly portray the faithfulness of the covenant God despite the failures of an erring humanity. God directs his people as they prepare for their journey through the wilderness, comforts them in difficulties, deals with their fears and failures, and rebukes or punishes them when necessary. This portrayal of God's faithfulness stands in sharp contrast to the book's repeated depiction of human faithfulness. The utter failure of humanity to meet God's standards by its own strength. Human failures are clearly portrayed and contrasted with the wise measures of the ever-faithful God. Even Moses, their great leader, sinned and was not permitted to enter the promised land, although he saw it from a distance. This shows that even the best of persons are still sinners and are saved only through the merits of Christ. Salvation comes only by the grace of God through faith in Christ. Numbers shows us how God responded to the unbelief of the Israelites. There are consequences to our disobedience, but God's grace remains and his redemptive plan and desire for us will not be stopped. The book of Numbers underscores for us the importance of obedience in the life of a Christian. And Paul reminded us of the value of learning from the way God has worked in the past. And that would be found in Romans chapter 15, verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 4. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 6 through 11. So the book of Numbers. As we open it up today, let us be reminded of God's faithfulness. And as we're going to study it for some time, as we walk through it, let that be a reminder for us that though yet we fail, God is faithful to what God has set out and what God has purposed. These people, God's people, spent 40 years in the wilderness. 
God has brought them through. We have read, we have studied. He has delivered them. He has brought them through. He has set them apart. He gave them commandments. He had them, he instructed them to build this tabernacle. He was desiring for his people to commune with him. And now he's leading them on to the land in which he has promised them, the promised land, the land of Canaan. So now we're going to walk through this with them. But let's pick up concluding the book of Leviticus. Chapter 27, verse 14. If someone dedicates a a house to the Lord, the priest will come to assess its value. The priest's assessment will be final, whether high or low. If the person who dedicated the house wants to buy it back, he must pay the value set by the priest, plus 20%. Then the house will again be his. If someone dedicates to the Lord a place of his family's property, its value will be assessed according to the amount of the seed required to plant it. Fifty shekels of silver for a field planted with five bushels of barley seed. If the field is dedicated to the Lord in the year of Jubilee, then the entire assessment will apply. But if the field is dedicated after the year of Jubilee, the priest will assess the land's value in proportion to the number of years left until the next year of Jubilee. Its assessed value is reduced each year. If the person who dedicated the field wants to buy it back, he must pay the value set by the priest, plus 20%. Then the field will again be legally his. But if he does not want to buy it back, and it is sold to someone else, the field can no longer be bought back. When the field is released in the year Jubilee, it will be holy, a field specially set apart for the Lord. It will become the property of the priest. If someone dedicates to the Lord a field he has purchased, but which is not part of his family property, the priest will assess it sets its value based on the number of years left until the next year of Jubilee. On that day, he must give the assessed value of the land as a sacred donation to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field must be returned to the person from whom he purchased it, the one who inherited as family property. All the payments must be measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 giras. You may not dedicate a first I'm sorry, you may not dedicate a firstborn animal to the Lord, for the firstborn of your cattle, sheep, and goats already belong to him. However, you may buy back the firstborn of a ceremonially unclean animal by paying the priest's assessment of its worth plus twenty percent. If you do not buy it back, the priest will sell it as its assessed value. However, anything specially set apart for the Lord, whether a person or an animal or family property, must never be sold or brought back. Anything devoted in this way has been set apart as holy, and it belongs to the Lord. No person specially set apart for destruction may be brought back. Such a person must be put to death. One-tenth of the produce of the land, whether grain from the fields or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord, and you must set it apart to him as holy. 
If you want to buy it back, the Lord's tenth of the grain or fruit, you must pay its value plus 20%. Count off every tenth animal from your herds and flocks and set them apart for the Lord as holy. You may pick and choose between good and bad animals, and you may not substitute, I'm sorry, you may not pick or choose and choose between good and bad animals, and you may not substitute one for another. But if you do exchange one animal for another, then both the original animal and its substitute will be considered holy and cannot be brought back. And then verse 34, the final verse in Leviticus. These are the commands that the Lord gave through Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. These commands were not man-made. These were commands from the Lord. And now we pick up the book of Numbers. A year after Israel's departure from Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle in the wilderness of Sinai. On the first day of the second month of that year, he said, From the whole community of Israel, record the names of all the warriors by their clans and families. List all the men 20 years old or older who were able to go to war. You and Aaron must register the troops, and you will be assisted by one family leader from each tribe. These are the tribes and names of the leaders who will assist you. Now, I'm not going to read um, verses, those names through verse 15 because I will butcher them. But they are listed there for you, the leaders from each of the tribe. The tribe of Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Issachar, Zubalin, Ephraim, Manassas, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. Then verse 16. These are the chosen leaders of the community, the leaders of their ancestral tribes, the heads of the clans of Israel. So Moses and Aaron called together these chosen leaders, and they assembled the whole community of Israel on that very day. All the people were registered according to their ancestry by by their clans and families. The men of Israel who were 20 years old or older were listed one by one just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So Moses recorded their names in the wilderness of Sinai. This is the number of men, 20 years old or older, who were able to go to war as their names were listed in the records of their clans and family. Reuben, Jacob's oldest son, 46,500. Simeon, 56, I'm sorry, 59,300. Gad, 45,650. Judah, 74,600. Issachar, 54,400. Zubalin, 57,400. Ephraim, son of Joseph, 40,500. Manasseh, son of Joseph, 32,200. Benjamin, 35,400. Dan, 62,700. Asher, 41,500. And Ephtali, 53,400. These were the men registered by Moses and Aaron, and the twelve leaders of Israel, all listed according to their ancestral descent. They were registered by families, all the men of Israel, 
who were 20 years old or older and able to go to war. The total number was 603,550. But this did not include the Levites. For the Lord had said to Moses, Do not include the tribe of Levi in the registration. Do not count them with the rest of the Israelites. Put the Levites in charge of the tabernacle and the covenant along with all its furnishing and equipment. They must carry the tabernacle and all its furnishing as you travel, and they must take care of it and camp around it. Whenever it is time for the tabernacle to move, the Levites will take it down. And when it is time to stop, they will set it up again. But any unauthorized person who goes too near too near the tabernacle must be put to death. Each tribe of Israel will camp in a designated area with its own family banner. But the Levites will camp around the tabernacle of the covenant to protect the community of Israel from the Lord's anger. The Levites are responsible to stand guard around the tabernacle. So the Israelites did everything just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Wow. I love how that chapter ends. They did everything. Here we see all these people following the instructions that Moses was giving them. And remember, if they're not Moses' instruction, they're God's instructions. But as we read through the book of Numbers, we're going to, be, we're going to start seeing how they are going to start turning and, from God and disobeying him. And they begin to wander around in the wilderness. And when we come to the end of the book, we will see a whole generation die in the wilderness because of their disobedience. But we will see a new generation rise up to claim the promises of God. Oh, let us pray as we're going through the book of Numbers that we would be a people who are faithful to the commands of God that we will be obedient to the call that he has placed upon our lives that we would serve him and that we will love him that others would begin to see what Christ has done in our lives and in so seeing it be drawn to Christ through our example of living a life set apart for him, of truly loving him with our whole being. It's not by our might, nor is it by our power, but it's only by the Spirit of God in us that we can live. People should see a difference in our lives. Even in the midst of seasons of wandering, <laughs> even in the midst of challenging times, that they will see fruit in our lives. That they wouldn't just see a lot of talk, but they would truly see the power of God. Go to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 1 through 25. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. 
Jesus sent two of them ahead. On ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they have cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the, king, on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in, high, in, the, in highest heaven! So Jesus came to, to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything he left, because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. He's fulfilling prophecy. Jesus enters in Jerusalem. The people at this moment begin to usher him in, giving praise to God. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs, but there were only leaves. It was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teachings. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree, he, he had cursed. The disciples noted it, noticed it, would, it had withered from its roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. And I don't know if you prepped yourself studying scriptures before we me to read them, but if you would have, you would understand the significance of the teaching of that fig tree. It was fruitless. 
as the temple was. Fruitless. And just as Jesus dealt with that fig tree, he's going to deal with the temple. There's no fruit found in it. He will destroy it by ultimately laying his life down. The temple was fruitless. Religious ways, re religion apart from Christ is fruitless. No matter the institution, no matter the beliefs, no matter how many followers there are, it's fruitless. Do you know how many people were coming to the temple? And there were probably some sincere people seeking God and not finding Him. And not finding Him. Because there's no fruit. God help us. God help us. Not to claim to be Christians and have no fruit in our lives. keep telling us is the saddest thing is that there would be people in hell with Jesus on their lips but not on their hearts there's been no transformation there's been no impact the power of God to awaken one's life how sad to claim it and never experience it what a lesson these disciples learned that day. We close out this portion of scripture. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you receive it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. And then in some manuscripts, verse 26 is added, but if you refuse to forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. He gives them a lesson on faith and prayer. And you can't be like those who have tried to, to manipulate this portion of Scripture, to, to claim whatever you want, <laughs> name it and claim it and receive it. It's not what Jesus is teaching here. Jesus is teaching the very essence of faith and prayer. Belief. And what we ask for is not out of, a, uh, out of our self-desires, but it's the will of God. Like we're praying in agreement in accordance with the will of God. And when we are praying in agreement with the will of God, we can be assured that God's will will be done. And we can hold to it, no matter what the situation may look like. Because we know our God, and we know that He is not as man that He would lie. 
that what God has planned and purposed, God will bring about. The Christian life is not to be a self-centered life. The Christian life is a life called to deny oneself, to pick up their cross, and to follow Him. To trust solely in Christ and in Christ alone. If God has said it, then we can believe it. And we should hold fast to it. We shouldn't be tossed back and forth. We shouldn't be double-minded. Can't pray in accordance and agreement with God and not believe it and yet still expect to receive it. It's double-mindedness. And that's not how a believer prays. You can't pray and then speak against what you just prayed for because now you're in agreement with what you see instead of truly what you say you believe. Oh, that we would grow and that we would mature. We want to be fruit bearers. We don't want to be one who is fruitless. Having a form of religion, but denying his power. Go to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and the mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam, let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. A river brings joy to the city of our God, the sacred home of the Most High. God dwells in that city. It cannot be destroyed. From the very break of day, God will protect it. The nations are in chaos and their kingdoms crumble. God's voice thunders and melts the earth. The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. God is our refuge and strength. I love how the psalm opens. He is our refuge and strength in the midst of chaos, in the midst of earthquakes, of hurricanes, of fires, of floods, of wars and famine, disease, whatever it is. God is our refuge and strength. Chaos can be all around us. But God is our refuge and strength. Verse 8, come see the glorious works of the Lord. See how he brings destruction upon the world. He causes wars to end throughout the earth. He breaks the bow and snaps the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be honored by every nation. I will be honored throughout the world. 
The Lord of heaven's armies is here among us. The God of Israel is our fortress. Be still. Be quiet. Shut up. (laughs) You know that I am God. When all of this is taking place, when chaos and, and nation is rising up against nation, when it seems like there's no way out, be quiet. Be still. Don't get caught up in it. Know that He is God. And as I always encourage you as we read and study through the book of Psalms, it draws us to look up to look up that we would not be shaken that we would not be moved for he is our God he is our refuge and strength he can't be now because we're sitting here and we hear it and yes Lord we're in agreement and then we get up from here and all of a sudden we get the phone call or an incident happens or something tragic is going on or the world gets thrown into chaos No, we must become rooted in Christ. We must truly believe that He is God. So check your response throughout this week. As you're facing challenges, and you will face them, as we go through this life, how are we responding to what is pressing up against us or what we see happening out there. Whom are we putting our trust in? He is God and God alone. And if he's not whom we are running to, if his truth, if his truth and his ways aren't what we are clinging to, then don't beat yourself up. Just repent. (laughs) Turn to him. Why turn inward to your emotions, to your insecurities, to your doubts, to your fears? Nothing will come from that but more chaos in your heart and in your mind. But if you turn to Jesus, if you cling to Jesus, if you hold tight to his promises until you know what is true, then you can rest in the assurance that God is your refuge and your strength. Go to Proverbs, chapter 10, a nugget of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Chapter 10, verse 23. Doing wrong is fun for a fool, but living wisely brings pleasure to the sensible. Mm -hmm. And oh, how this proverb we need to cling to and hold to, to this wisdom and the generation in which we're living. Because the fools are running amok. And they seem as if they are getting everything they've ever desired and wanting. But nothing good is going to come from it in the end. For that would be all that they have. So doing wrong is fun for a fool. 
But oh, let us remember, living wisely brings pleasure to the sensible. So let us be people who are choosing each day to live wisely. Amen? Amen. Let me close us with the song of worship, and then I'll close us in prayer. Oh. Um.